Welcome to If the Walls Could Talk, a series of conversations about smart buildings, connecting key thinkers in the industry with each other and with you. I'm Jules Barker, Global Director of Product at WideScore, the certification company dedicated to making the world's buildings smarter and better connected. In this series, we're exploring how to create a smart building that works, so that people like you and I can communicate, collaborate and innovate seamlessly. In this episode, we're going to focus on the development process, like what to consider when specifying a building and how to navigate the supply chain. Joining us to discuss this is David Armour, Siemens Head of Commercial Markets in the US. David has led all kinds of infrastructure projects across New York, adding modern day innovations to iconic buildings like the Empire State, Madison Square Gardens and the Statue of Liberty. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jules. Welcome. Um, David, before we get going, tell us a little bit about Siemens and your experience. I think Siemens technology is pretty much everywhere in New York, but give us a little flavor of some of the buildings you've worked on. Well, Jules, I'd like to uh, say you can't walk two blocks in most cities without passing Siemens, even if you can't see it. Uh, As an infrastructure provider, uh, we're behind the walls, under the floor, above the ceiling, uh, below the ground. Um, We're uh, ubiquitous. And um, I think that one, one project that uh, it's fun to talk about is Carnegie Hall. I think it's, a, it's an iconic facility known around the world. A 125-year-old brick building has a certain amount of permeability. So you have air, moisture that comes in. And since you can't touch the barrier, you actually have to then proactively manage that uh, moisture when it comes in. So it doesn't affect the floors. It doesn't affect music instruments. Instruments are not big fans of humidity. And, and so it, it was, it was um, quite the journey to understand uh, how do you take the 21st century and make it work within uh, a 19th century building. There is a phrase, there's a word, um, smart, smart buildings, which is what this podcast is, is obviously all about. Smart means different things to different people, though. Um, what does smart mean to you in Siemens? Well, the first thing is um, who appreciates and who benefits from smart? Smart um, is good for the building operator. It's uh, preemptive, proactive. It's knowledgeable. It's tenant and employee occupant focused. Uh, and so that means it's engaging those individuals. And it's not just, well, if something doesn't work, I pick up the phone. A smarter building uh, can instruct the building to adapt to what I need. And so uh, information is going to be uh, one of the essential ingredients to making a, a facility smarter. Capturing the information and then converting the information. We all talk about data. Data by itself isn't very useful data converted into knowledge is. And so going forward, a smarter facility, smarter building is going to uh, be driven by knowledge. You started very interestingly there with the user, which is something that WideScore feels quite strongly that fundamental to a good smart building is the outcomes it delivers for users. What role does Siemens have in getting that right? We have uh, a tool set we've developed over the years called um, co-creation. And it is a forum where we bring uh, the interested parties together. That could be the building owner, the operator, the engineer, a whole series of personas 
to the table. And then uh, Siemens is also at the table leading the dialogue around, mostly in the beginning, what the use cases need to be to make it a smarter building. And those use cases are focused on all the end users, whether they are the tenants or the people that manage the building from the inside. And it's a rather um, invasive dialogue. It really gets into the heart of what should uh, the mission of this real estate asset be today? What should it be next year? What should it be in five years' time? What other decisions does a landlord need to make up front in order to get to successful conclusions down the line versus what decisions can a landlord or a developer delay till further down in the progress? I think a lot of um, the discussions we have begin with the expectation that it's all about the technology. The technology is the enabler, but the secret sauce in all of this is understanding the direction, the journey uh, that the building owner developer wants and needs to take. Some of that is about their business mission, how they want to be seen in the market. Some of it is uh, competitive, meaning, hey, the the building down the street just did X, Y, and Z. I need to keep up in order to be uh, attractive in the market. Some of it is if it's a, for example, a corporate real estate owner, uh, they may have ESG targets that require movement in this direction. There isn't going to be one uniform answer to, hey, this is how, if you fulfill these criteria, then then you can start the smart building journey. And I think one of the challenges a lot of people find is that technology moves really fast. And so being compelled to make decisions very early in, in the development process feels uncomfortable, given that it could be five plus years before the user actually gets the benefit of that technology. How reversible do you think these decisions are, these early decisions? And, and, and how can a developer make the decisions more reversible so, um, so that they can change their mind and evolve later on? Reversible says that you might move back. I can't recall where we've ever moved back. We've adjusted. But there are things that building owners, for example, could can do today. Much of what we do in the smarter space requires IT infrastructure. And um, it begs the question, um, how much infrastructure do you need? Because if you think about it, I need a network for my building automation system. I need one for the fire and life safety. I need one for the security system. I need one for the voice communications. I need one uh, to manage different parts of building security. And often uh, those are separate and redundant systems. And so the the learning and the change that uh, we're pushing into the market is a way to, if you want to say a smarter way to build the IT infrastructure so that you have enough redundancy, but not so much that there's waste involved. I'd like to ask a couple of questions about the procurement process. Do do you advocate um, your clients adopting a different process when procuring tech items for a development as opposed to non-tech items like uh, demolition or a building facade? The commercial real estate industry at large um, has followed a process that's been pretty consistent for the last century. When you start to get into the smart space, uh, it gets a bit more challenging because it's not a matter of buying pieces and parts. Uh, We can put a map together that says, this is what a smart building looks like, and here's all the technology that goes in. 
But if you start to buy it pieces and parts, the piece that you're missing and the reason smart buildings work isn't that you have all the individual components, but rather the individual components logically connect and they know and that there is something in place that directs how they speak to each other. And that's the piece that uh, often gets left on the side. And how do you or, or your client sift through the thousands of technology providers that, that are out there at the moment? We actually make choice. We're, um, we're uh, adaptable to really if, a, if, if one of our customers says, hey, I want this specifically, sure, uh, we'll figure out a way to make that happen. But we do have preference. We do have um, tested solutions that we would say, look, uh, we're expert in the space. We've done this all over the globe. Um, we recommend a solution that looks like the following. And that's because we've gone out and validated end-to-end that these things work. David, simplistically, I think there are two integration methodologies for technology. You can either mix a load of different systems from different suppliers, or you can go to one company like Siemens who'll provide an entire package. Now, I hear from third-party integrators all the time that if you want to be able to mix systems and get best in class for each, then you can't go to a single company like Siemens or Schneider or Honeywell or whoever it is, because all these systems in reality are actually closed and, and only use their own ones. How, how do you think about that? And, and how do you think about Siemens' role as an innovator across multiple systems and integration methodologies? In the past, systems were closed um, in part because uh, there weren't open standards. Uh, we don't make the systems open. The standards institutions drive the openness. Because what is open if you can't uh, sit on a a communication protocol that is standardized, for example. We all, all the manufacturers need and want that. Those standards have been around and there's no incentive for any company to stay closed. Once uh, there is openness, everyone has to follow that path. Do you think that your real estate customers historically have been slow to innovate and, and is that changing? I don't think you can point the finger just at our customers. The market drives things. You know, back uh, in the day, if you wanted to see a, a movie at home, you'd go to Blockbuster Video. Once the internet had enough bandwidth, people stopped going to Blockbuster. There isn't a Blockbuster on the street anymore. Now, the infrastructure, the internet, and the higher bandwidth wasn't driven just by the uh, the movie industry. It was driven by lots of other things. So our customers are also adapting based on the tools that are available to them and the forces that are impacting their business every day. A critical part of innovation is being able to accurately and correctly predict what the future will look like and what people will want in the future. How do you uh, and how do your clients work out what to deliver for a tenant that probably hasn't arrived yet, that, where they don't know who the tenant's going to be and it's going to be three years before they know who the tenant is, but five years before that tenant moves in. How do you set the technology parameters in that situation? It's actually a fact that we don't know. And so um, the area that we're spending time R&D and, and innovating in is how do you make it adaptable so that you don't care what happens in five years, uh, that you can quickly adapt to what does happen. Pre-pandemic, 
you may have had in a 15-story building a single tenant. Post-pandemic, that tenant may have said, you know what, I don't need all the space I had pre-pandemic because I'm now uh, a portion of my workforce is virtual. And there are ways to plan for infrastructure to be more flexible so that it doesn't matter how many tenants you have, you can make the fire and life safety systems and the power distribution and the automation uh, flexible enough that in a sh- very short period of time, you're able to adapt to from one to three tenants, for example, without you know shutting those spaces down for many months at a time. How much does smart cost? I think there's a perception that getting a building from normal to smarter is an expensive process. What's your take on that? You have to look at it in the construct of what is total cost to um, have a smart building? And what's the total cost of not having one? At Carnegie Hall, I mentioned 125 plus year old building. There was uh, a small army of people running around uh, adjusting things because uh, you needed to physically turn things on and off and adjust valves. Post implementation, all done from a single pane of glass by one person. Was there an expense related to implementing things? Absolutely there was. But, you know, if you only look at it in the construct of first cost, uh, you may say, well, I'm never going to do, quite frankly, anything because there's a first cost. David, thank you very much. That was, uh, that was really fascinating. A great discussion. I think uh, what I've learned from that is the importance of planning and, and thinking things through right at the beginning to make sure it's flexible and it's going to deliver the outcomes that you want. That was a great conversation. Thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity to talk, Jules. Very much appreciated. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to If the Walls Could Talk using your usual podcast provider. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.